0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi everyone, I'm Ikresh Gufta Chima, your host for the New Books Network. Today we will talk with Dr. Sadia Sombol about her book, Islam and Religious Change in Pakistan, Sufis and Ulema in 20th Century South Asia, which was published by Routledge in 2022. Thank you so much for joining me today, Sadia.
1: Thank you, Thanks for
0: organizing this talk and thank you, to New Book Network for giving me an opportunity to share my work. Great. So could you please introduce yourself and your work to the audience?
1: Yeah, um, I'm uh, working as associate professor in Psychology uh, University in Lavar, uh, in history department. And this is my this this book is based on my uh, Ph.D. dissertation. Um, it's um, the big story in the in the book is um, Conflict between shrine-based shiastic practices and Sharia-oriented textual traditions, and um, it investigates the process of contestation in the combination of, you know, the the two facets of Islam and their proponents, uh, the bravees and the bandis, through a case study of a district. I've taken a um, a case study, um, which is a Miyawali district in the northwest of Punjab. Um, I've studied that how Islamic reformism came to be established in, in this region where, uh, you know, Sufism was historically grounded. Um, and um, uh, the, for the Ubandi Islam, um, is, I mean, the, the Ubandi Islam faced a lot of challenge in such a situation where the Sufism is so strongly embedded. So um, how the Ubandis articulated the reformist agenda, and to what extent they asserted themselves. Um, I mean, sometimes they attach shrine-oriented traditions um, with extreme puritanism, and sometimes they had to negotiate and adapt the shrine-based traditions. So my argument was that reformist ideas could find space uh, in this region only after accommodating suit thoughts and practices. I mean, they could not outrightly reject all shrine-oriented practices. Um, So there existed a a, a dialectical relationship between reformist Islam and traditional Islam. Sometimes they intercepted, sometimes they accommodated each other. Um, Now this conflict between Islamic reformism and Sufism, um, which unfolded itself in the colonial period and then it changed in its relationship to one another and shifted into a more hostile um, engagement with the state in the post-colonial Pakistan. So in this conflict, the two central issues of opposition to Amwadia and enforcement of Sharia at state level were added into this conflict. And they this conf- these two conflicts. I mean the the conflict uh, with the Anvadia and the enforcement of Sharia at state level these brought new elements to the discourse of authority. So, I mean, what we see in the post-colonial era is that there are much hardening of boundaries between the
0: two denominations. Thank you for sharing these details. So how did you get interested in the project? How did the dissertation start, and how did it turn into the book?
1: Well, um, um, you know, there are um, two reasons for why I picked up this district, because I... I've done a case study. There was one academic reason and one non-academic reason. The academic reason was that the non-academic first is that this is my hometown and uh, I found wealth of material which was consisting of geographical literature and uh, archival sources which were um, and the, the district um, was an epicenter of uh, reformist movement in the colonial era um, a very um, uh, famous um, movement of Abdullah Chakrabi ah uh, the Quran movement, also initiated from this small district. Uh, in the post-colonial ta- um, period, there were also reformist movements. One uh, was um, uh, launched by um, Wallana Alayar uh, Chakrabi, which was a very important movement. So I I wanted to study these phenomena, but but why this district, which is on the periphery of Punjab, uh, was the hub of so many so many reformist uh, movements, and uh, the, this district was actually a border district that lies at the crossroad of Punjab and northwest frontier. So today's Khan. and it became a point of convergence of you know these cross cultural and religious currents and is. Uh, a site of resurgent um, reformist movement, uh, reformist religious impulse. So it was important to see that how Punjab's pluralistic and composite culture changed with the emergence of reformist and revivalist movements, which resulted in um, you know uh, forging distinct religious identities and um, religious nationalism, which sharpened communal identities. So so this reformist movement became a boundary making phenomenon in punjab uh, where syncretic traditions were common and um, so um islam's modern transformation um which is generally seen either in doctrinal abstraction i mean we we see that it as as high islam or at larger scale um But both handles miss social gaps on the ground that shape religious change in any given setting. So when you are working on trajectories of modern Islam or the reformist movement, which originated from North India, um, it gave Ulema a status of, an important status, uh, a status of custodian of Islam. And and that helped them uh, in establishing the Islamic reformism. So the nature of religious change was different at larger level. So I tried to link this micro to macro level in order to analyze, you know, the, the, the different processes of contestation and negotiation that led to this outcome. Because in my case study, the you know the Islamic reformism uh, came to be established in the region where shrine focused Sufism remained very dominant, and it was closely linked to. Um, local, tribal, and political structures. So in this hierarchical, tribal, rural structure of Islam, which uh, gave them identity um, of their collective self, ulama were conceived as outsiders, and they met a lot of resistance from the Sufis. So this placed ulama on social paraphrase during colonial era. So it was important to to study and to understand that how in such a situation, the reformist Islam came to be established here. So this, this was, uh, I mean, the reason why I, I picked up this and uh, tried to link the micro to macro level. very thank you so much for sharing that. And with the, soup, the soupy beast, Islam Shrine Oriented Islam. Um, I treat my book as uh, a first research on the contestation of modernity and tradition in colonial Punjab, even not much work has been done on Punjab. Um, as I said that generally they have done one, uh, they studied this phenomenon of contestation and accommodation at higher level, at larger level in North India. Um, and um, my one starts from the colonial Punjab and then it ranges over the period of post-colonial Pakistan now, as you know, that Punjab was steeped in local customary Islam based on sophisticated ethos enshrining oriented religiosity, um, uh, which is identified with Bareilly denomination, well entrenched in Punjabi uh, religious landscape. So now the debate centered on the question of conflict and divide between you know mystical and legal traditions in Islamic law or Sharia and So, you know, this book contests these binaries and view them as rooted in much older Orientalist dichotomy between, you know, Scholar and Or Because Orientalists draw a contrast between, um, you know, the reformed Obandis and, um, you know, uh, unreformed uh, binaries. So, um, this book contests this approach through which Ubandi Banavi controversy is seen through binaries like legal, mystical, inclusivist, exclusivist, reformist, and tradition. Um, my argument is that this is a distorted binary construction. Because the real fault lines between the Ubandis and Banelbis have mostly to do with the you know the divergent view on the concept of profitology, uh, Because you know this conflict um and the, the, the debate on 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 this conflict but uh, revolves around the concept of partial and impartial powers of Prophet, that is called Kulli and Juzgi powers. Um, the Ubandis have seen Sufism as an essential part of uh, Muslims' moral life, which is inseparable from Islamic legal norms. Uh, but they reject those popular practices which are associated with local shrine based islam so they they like they sought to reorient so, sufi practice um, around an ethics of self transformation not um um you know you know based on the um, veneration of saints around their virtues not around their miracles so uh, my assertion was that Sufism is a tripartite phenomenon. There are three dimensions of Sufism: literary, institutional, and emotional. And these three are intersecting; they are mutually constituted. Uh, there are areas of convergence. There are areas of overlaps in the reform agenda of the bandis, But there is no outright rejection of all. So you cannot see this phenomenon of controversy and contestation. Uh,
0: through the lens of binaries, uh, this was my main assertion about uh, this conflict. Great, thank you so much for sharing that, Sadia. So, um, could you share some details about the Ubandi and Brailies and the different kinds of dichotomies among them? You already kind of talked about profitology. so could you specifically talk about their views on the profit and the you know, considering the current crisis in Pakistan, particularly? As I
1: said, that the real fault flying between the Bandis and Bareilles had mostly to do with uh, their divergent views on the concept of prophetology, which was ex- explained by Ahmad Reza Khan, Bareilles, who was a, a founder of the School of Thought. And uh, the ideology of prophetology, he discussed in his uh, very famous treatise, Hassam harman which was published in 1903. And um, a summary in, in in that, he very clearly defines the idea of prophetology that he calls Ahl Sunnat's concept of prophetology. Um, and he says that, um, I mean, the main features of the concept of prophetology are that the divine sovereignty was inseparable from the authority of the prophet as the most beloved beloved of God's creation. Now, unlike him, the Bandits believed prophet as insani kamil, which is a perfect human, um, and is but his subservience to sovereign divine. Uh and uh, the the central architect of this Dubandi concept, this this idea of insani, insani was a uh, 19th century Muslim reformer, thinker, Shai Mai. The uh, Bandis were influenced by his ideas. And uh, the, the difference seen on the question of prophets ontological exceptionality, you know, the Bandis gave a lot of space to Piety in their doctrinal orientation, but they considered, um, you know, profit as not only the source of normative teaching, but a living presence, whereas counter to their argument, and what Rizal Khan Khan argued that divine sovereignty was inseparable from profit and authority. Conflict was based on Um, Prophet's knowledge of unknown, the unlimited knowledge of unknown, uh, ability of prophet, uh, ability of seeing and being, this is called Hazar of Nazir, that the prophet is alive in his grave and he can see and he can can listen, Uh, the concept of Nure Muhammadi that he's created out of divine light, and the concept of Shafat, the intercession, that he will intercede uh, on the day of judgment, uh, with 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 his month, with his followers, and um, um, Barelvi's when the Ubandis denied all these concepts, uh, to Barelvi's you know they they called them declared them as Wahhabis. Now Wahhabi is a term which Barelvi's used pejoratively. It, it's very important to know that in in South Asia, Wahhabi is a term which is used. Um, contemptuously, the one who is a bad Muslim, the one who is not on the right track, who has wrong belief in religion, is called as Wahhabi. Or, uh, otherwise, I mean, the Wahhabi is just uh, the one who is a so. follower of arch-conservative reformer, Mohammed bin Abdul Bahar uh, of Saudi Arab. Uh, and you know, his followers were also called Muahedun because his idea of his, his theological thinking was based on Tawhid. Uh-huh oneness of God. So his followers were known as Wahid. But here in South Asia, uh, the Wahhabi term was be the one who doesn't have the right or the correct means. So at the heart of Barili theology existed a deep, respectful prophet. And uh, I, what I will uh, say that the, you know these are the, the this conflict between uh, the Ubandis and Barili on the concept of prophetology is actually a uh, a competing understanding of relationship between God's sovereignty and Prophet's authority. This created disagreement, you know, the Benelvi defended all uh, devotional practices, rituals that venerated Prophet's memory. And these contrasting images of Prophet between the Obandis and berelvi became more explicit when um, the Obandh opposed Subism and uh, this prophetology and in fact there was a you can say that there's a hermeneutical and conceptual difference on prophetology between the two denominations. so th- they cannot be this hermeneutical difference between the two denominations cannot be translated as uh, binaries or divisions but it should be um, i mean approached as contestation between competing rationalities of tradition mm-hmm. and reform uh, not as a, as a conflict uh, between the two denominations. It's the competing understanding of concept of profitology that created
0: conflict. This is my understanding. Great. Um, how would you comment on the role of ulama in these debates? Sorry? How would you comment on the role of ulama in these debates? A contemporary or, you know, at that time, you bring in some of the scholars that have, like, um, talked about these ideas, introduced these ideas, and their followers, um, but stick like, the wider conversation about like, the role that ulamas or religious scholars play in the society in terms of these debates.
1: Um, relationship um, between, you know, Islam, state, identity, um, was a, it remained a big question in public space in the post-colonial state of Pakistan. Because, uh, you know, the, I mean, there was a visible resurgence of Islam in in the context of identity formation um, that led to a growing range of activities of Ulema in the public and religious affairs. Um In the post-colonial state of Pakistan, Ulema's role Um, was uh, politicized, it was the ulema were very politically active, and the reason was uh, what I mean, what created a space for them in politics was um, the Objective Resolution 1949, which was passed, um, which was a decisive step towards, um, you know, uh, Islamic, towards establishment of an Islamic state, and it clearly defined Who's a Muslim and who's not a Muslim, and uh, you know it, it defined the clearly defined Muslim. So this this drew a boundary between Muslim and non-Muslim, which intensified uh, or which in fact created an exclusion between um and hostile environment between Muslims and non-Muslim citizens of Pakistan. Now the reason was that when Objective Resolution was passed and Pakistan was declared as an Islamic state, so the national narrative of post-colonial state of Pakistan was built on Islam, Sharia Islam, reformist Islam became the principal determinant of uh, you know national identity of state. So on behalf of state, the national identity was declared um, by uh, by the, the I mean the state declared the national identity based on sharia so this this was the defining feature of you know reformist version uh, i mean the propagation of religious exclusion uh, this led to uh, sectarian differences so objective resolution actually committed pakistan to greater islamization and khatmin nabuwat issue once again i mean khatmin nabuwat was an issue in the colonial days but in the post colonial state of pakistan it it emerged as a more central issue, and yeah. <clears throat> this uh, obviously gave Bulema a wider space in politics for religious activism. First, in the form of 1953 Khutme then, then in the form of 1974 Khutme And uh, in in this in these movements, I mean, what is important to understand to note note I mean, which I I figured out in my research that. There was an emergence of aggressive Berevism, uh, political activism in these movement. And um, you know, the Berevis had very um, actively participated in the electoral politics and Barili ideologues, you know, they they uh, they linked the structure of localist politics with broader concept of Islamic community. They used the, the concepts like pan-Islamism and um, you know the the greater. Muslim uh, Islamic Ummah and Muslim community. Uh, so uh, these all jargons and these all uh, the, you know the 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 concepts that they used in politics. It's it linked the structure of local politics with the broader concept of Islamic community first in British India and then in the post-colonial state of Pakistan. So I mean, what was important to know that the religious change um uh, reflected as as a result of Ulema's uh, this overt uh, opposition to Ahmadiyya and opposition to uh, Sophistic Sufistic Islam. Um you know the, the the religious change reflected a narrow list of space for Sufistic equals within the Bandi circle. And it led to the hardening of boundaries between religious denominations in the post-colonial state of Pakistan. I mean, a state-led national narrative, which was based on Sharia-oriented Islam, replaced pluralist traditions with more exclusionary and uh, you know sectarian differences. So the relationship between Sufism and Islamic revivalism, um, is, you know, put them in in a dialectical process where um, we see more hardening of boundaries, and that was because of. The you know the state's narrative, which was based on Sharia Islam, which gave uh, ample space to ulema to get into politics, and uh, this whole situation had created um, you know the 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 conflict between the two denomination more intense uh, and forged uh, distinct religious categories and boundaries.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for elaborating that. So, how do these connections seep into the military constituencies, and how do you think that affects the larger political or cultural climate?
1: This I discussed in the, uh, I think in the in the fifth chapter of my book. Um, it was um, uh, the the military. Uh, this is about. Uh, I just want to give a brief uh, overview of uh, the the that. Uh, you know seeped into Pakistan military. and this was uh, Nakshmaniaiya messi Sinsla. um and it was linked with the bandi uh, Islam. um this was the time the silsla was uh, the idol of Sinsla was one Alayar chakralbi and um uh, it was the military government of uh, a this was nineteen sixty two when the Silsla was first uh, founded. And, uh, you know, as a uh, military government of a Yukon tried to control Islam through military, and, you know, they, they, they tried to introduce a more modern version of Islam. And um, this actually helped the Silsalab penetrate into the ranks of armed forces of Pakistan. Um, and uh, the institutional support of army constituency linked the Silsalab to the center of power. Uh, now, the soldiers who were coming with the background of the uh, rural customary Islam, they accept uh, the, the Sufi-inspired reformist message, because the Siddhsla had a very uh, it was an orthodox dubandi uh, Siddhsla uh, which believed in a strict uniformity of Sharia than Qayyuk. So it, you can say that this was a Sufi-inspired Dubandi Siddhsla. And the Sufi inspired dubandi Sitsla had a greater appeal among the Soldiers who were coming from the rural background, and um because this this sufi inspired reformist message was became compatible with military government's agenda of reformulating a composite identity. You know, a, a Khan um, uh, tried to he 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 did not align with the uh, Sufis or the ulema, but he he chose mysticism. As as a philosophy, because mysticism in, as a philosophy is uh, devoid of politics. So he that is why he tried to um, you know develop a modern version of Islam which is closer to mysticism, and that is why uh, you know this simply in, inspired reformist message became compatible with the uh, military government's agenda of uh, Islam as a composite identity. So the Silsla had its strongest expression in Pakistan during 1971 war. After the fall of Dhaka, you know, 93,000 Pakistani soldiers were imprisoned in, in many of the, uh, you know, Indian war camps. Uh, and one such prisoner of war camp was in Gaya, camp number 93, where a lot of soldiers were followers of, uh, of this, uh, they were imprisoned and they established their within the camp. And, um, um, you know, the the, the founder of Assisya, Mo'lana Alaya called this, uh, um, you know, the, this uh, group of imprisoned officers as Jamaat Akhubat Salatin. This was a name that he gave and he tried, I mean, Jamaat Akhubat Salitin indicates that he tried to forge brotherhood among them in this time of distress. So army as an influential kind community, he linked the sil- Silsila to the power structure. And Jamaat's message soon reached, you know, throughout the Mil- military belt because it was started from Chakwal. Chakwal was a military belt in the Salt Range area. And from there, the message reached from cantonment to cantonment. And uh, since, uh, you know, um, at the Silsila, as I told you that we had a very puritanical disposition. I mean, a strict uniformity of Sharia and theikal. So it drew a very clear line uh, between Islam and its constitutive other. the Sinsla was very hostile towards Shia community. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's missionary style, uh, plus it's mis- mystical substance, and uh, then exclusionary streak because it was puritanical. Um, being a Supreme-inspired Sinsla, it had very puritanical disposition. So this made it with, these, with the combination of these things, like the Silaslav's missionary style, and then the mystical substance and exclusionary strains, so it made it very complex. And uh, Jamal had a, had a strong appeal to ordinary Muslim, but due to its, uh, why it has a stronger appeal to ordinary Muslim due to its Sufi thoughts, due to its mystical message but the way it espoused Sharia generated an exclusionary discourse so you can you can say that the impact of this since now outside the society I mean inside the military it was you know the the, the its impact was tremendous but outside the society uh, you can say that with the sufi's cultural sensitivity its pluralistic traditions were placed against you know this essentialist Purifying logic of Islamic reformism. So, this replaced syncretic traditions with more exclusionary sectarian in society. So, outside in the society, the impact of this since now was um, um, yeah. division and strife and exclusive sectarian
0: wedge that it created in the society. Thank you for elaborating that. How would you suggest that readers and academics approach this book, or what research directions do you recommend for them?
1: Well, um, I think um, when you're working on um, the different trajectories of modern South Asian Islam, um, more research is uh, required on um, social history on religion. Um because like you know, as I said earlier that the focus of um, most of the scholars is on I know, high Islam, the doctrinal Islam or on the Islam or Sufism in the medieval age, um very less work has been done on the um, to understand social history of religion. So while working on the trajectories of modern South Asian Islam, I think um, more focus um, of readers and writers should also be on the uh, local dynamics, um, because it's it's important to know and understand that the impact of, for example, in case of my work, the impact of uh, this phenomenon of reformist Islam uh, was very different. In the North India, and uh, the the nature of religious change in the twentieth century, Pakistan um, the you know the situation was much different because um, the impact of this reformist Islam and the as a result, the nature of religious change that emerged um, was um, much different from Uh, what it was in the, in, in, in Dubai or in India, North India from where the reformist movement um, emerged. Uh, Because the, you know, the, the, the situation is very different in the local, when you come to the local dynamics at at micro level. So I think um, my idea is that more research, is needed on the social history of religion, to understand that the phenomenon of religious change more deeply. Thank you
0: so much. Thanks a lot for uh, this wonderful conversation, Sadia. Thank, Thank you so much. much. It's my pleasure.